This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast on the Times. I'm Matt. Surely. Now, an absolutely bumper show on Times Radio today. Uh, we talked about PMQs Unpacked with Tim Shipman, political editor of the Sunday Times, where we pause the action to try and explain what's going on between Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer. We had Dr Lisa Cameron talking about lion trophy hunters. We had Wendy Chamberlain, MP, talking about Shinty. We discussed what Dominic Cummings should be reading. But by far the standout... Uh, section of the show today uh, was a fascinating chat with not one but two former Prime Ministers, uh, Helen Thorne-Schmidt and Julia Gillard, uh, former Prime Ministers of uh, Denmark and Australia. So uh, I basically didn't really need to do anything. They knew each other from uh, being part of the World Leaders Club. So I just had to sit back and relax and enjoy what they had to to talk about, about the highs and lows and the difficulties of being uh, a world leader, but particularly being a female world leader. Uh, So you can do the same now. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, Get in touch with us. Uh, If you want to, you can uh, tweet us at Times Radio or find me at Matt Chorley. Good morning. Matt Jolly here on Times Radio with you until one o'clock. Coming up at midday, Boris Johnson faces PMQs in the House of Commons. But what's it like to be a prime minister? There aren't that many uh, uh, former prime ministers around the world. And we've got two of them coming up on the show right now. Julia Gillard served as Australia. Uh, Julia Gillard served as Australia's first female Prime Minister from uh, 2010 to 2013. Since leaving office, she's focused on women's rights, mental health and education. And she chairs the Global Institute for Women's Leadership now at King's College London. Helen Thorning-Schmidt was Denmark's first female Prime Minister from 2011 to 2015. So they, they, they did overlap. And she served as uh, Chief Executive of Save the Children from 2016 to 2019. Good morning, uh, Good morning, Julia. Good morning, Matt. Great yeah, to be with you. It's great to have you on the show. Good morning, Heather. Good morning. Nice to be with. You. Nice to hear your voice, Julia. <laughs> <laughs> nice course, to hear yours too. You Hell, two, a long time no see. You two know each other, <laughs> don't you? Obviously. We do, of course. We served, uh, at, as you just said, uh, at the same time. We met at many meetings, and our path of path crossed uh, after that as well. In um, yeah, in in many different aspects of uh, of trying to change the world. So, so um, let me start with what might seem like a daft question, but it's something that's always sort of fascinated me. What is it like when you become a prime minister? I'll start with you, Julia. I mean, obviously, in you know, slightly crazy, well, it's quite often crazy circumstances when somebody becomes prime minister. But um, you're replacing a colleague as prime minister. Um, what's that like when you suddenly think, "Blimey, I'm in charge of a country"? What goes through your head? <laughs> Well, it, 
it doesn't quite happen like that. Uh, I did take over in uh, difficult circumstances and really it was just about managing minute by minute and, you know, everything was so pressurised and so intense, every 60 seconds had to count. Uh, to be sworn in, to uh, handle the first question time, to, you know, take up the levers of power. And it's not until you get over that immediacy, you know, a number of weeks afterwards that you've got the opportunity to sit and reflect a little bit about what that felt like in the moment you're just too busy in the doing. Was that the same experience for you, Ho? Yeah, quite. First of all, I mean, you are. I was in politics. I was leader of my party and had been for, for many years before I became prime minister. So I was kind of going for that big time because if you're the leader of my party, you have to go for, to be prime minister. So, so it's not something that happens surprisingly overnight. And it's very it's a lot of hard work, a lot of hard campaigning to reach that position. And I came in in 2011 middle of the financial crisis, uh, the day after we had to uh, start working on the EU presidency, which is, is rotates amongst EU member states. So, I mean, I ha- had exactly the same feeling. There was never time to just sit uh, and sit back and admire myself for, for being the first premier, female prime minister. Many people have asked me that. Uh, when did you stop and take stock of, of the magnitude of what you have, had achieved? And the answer is never, because you just get on with the, with the work. And, and which bit of the job surprised you? Because you know, like you said, as the leader of uh, another party, you know, you, that was always the job you were pitching for. But what, which bit of the, of the job was not as you expected? I mean, I was very well prepared. I'd seen prime ministers before me, so there wasn't a lot of things that I got surprised by. One thing that I realised was because I was the leader of a coalition government with two other parties and uh, on top of that, a minority government, was the amount of time that I spent internally uh, rather than externally trying to speak to the electorate and trying to convince people about our policies. So I spent too much time uh, inward looking (laughs) rather than being uh, externally engaged. I think every Prime Minister probably ends up thinking that they spend too much time with their own colleagues who are all supposed to be on side rather than uh, dealing... For sure. Was that your experience as well, Julia? Well, I ended up leading a minority government. So, yes, a lot of time was spent uh, talking to the people that we needed to have on side in order to pass legislation. Uh, Ultimately, we got very good at that because we were the most productive government in Australia's history in terms of the amount of legislation that was passed. In terms of things that surprised me, I mean, really, I had a good insight into what the job would be like. I'd been Deputy Prime Minister and I'd been in politics for a number of years. But there's all sorts of crazy lifestyle things that until you live them, you wouldn't really understand, you know, the having of full-time security, the living in the official residence. Uh, And being the first woman, a lot of that system has to adapt to, um, you know, a different outlook on the world and a different way of doing things. You know, I do remember sort of silly things like talking to, you know, my security detail. Uh, Yes, I'm going to go to the hairdressers on Saturday. They're all saying, okay, we'll book that in the diary for half an hour. Oh, no, let's let's just back that up. It's going to take longer than that. Um, I remember taking them to a beauty salon only to find one of them knowledgeably talking to a woman about moisturisers by the time I came back to the waiting room to refine the security details. So, yes, Uh, things have to adapt. (laughs) 
<laughs> uh, you mentioned uh, having an official residence. Obviously, that's, you know, a perk of the job, if you like. But, Julia, when I was um, uh, reading up on your time, as it wasn't always all that glamorous, was it? You had issues with your, with your official residence, including when you had a, a world leader around for dinner. Uh, yes, the uh, official residence in Canberra is a sort of beautiful uh, old country house, but it did need a lot of renovation. Actually, we authorised the renovations. It had been left for far too long because it's hard for politicians to say, let's spend taxpayers' money on something like that. Uh, but it did mean, for example, that at one official dinner, uh, because there were possums in the roof, you know, an Australian animal, a little possum, uh, that there was you know, possum wee, not to put too fine a point on it, uh, starting to come down the wall towards a very, very noteworthy Australian painting. Uh, so people had to be quickly shepherded out into another area <laughs> so the painting could be rescued. Uh, what about you, Helen? Do you have a trouble with possums in Copenhagen? No, we're, we're quite free of possums here in Copenhagen. It's a very peaceful place. Uh, but... Uh, um, but, I mean, there are things that are less glamorous than you think. People always see the glamorous side from the outside world. But, of course, there are many, many unglamorous moments in politics in general where you eat your sandwich on the back, back seat of a car, where you uh, travel uh, and uh, in the middle of the night. So it's so so unglamorous, actually, on the back, on the, uh, the other side. And also, I, I, I lived in my own house with my kids, and uh, I did a lot of uh, cooking and clearing up and washing clothes and all those. I think I'm the prime minister in the world who has washed most clothes and ironed my own clothes. So I think this is Denmark, and it's very, actually, it's very unglamorous to be prime minister. Uh, nevertheless, it's an amazing uh, task that, uh, to serve your, your people, and I'm, I'm truly honoured that I, I had the opportunity to do that. So obviously you you overlap with David Cameron when he was the, the Prime Minister in the UK and you all go to big global summits and all that sort of thing. Who who was the most fun in the sort of... You two obviously get on, uh, but who was, the, who was the most fun in the sort of world leaders club? <laughs> I, I spent a fair, fair bit of time with David Cameron uh, at the G20 and also we had the uh, Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting in Perth and he came here for that, as you would expect, a British Prime Minister coming to Chogham. Uh, he did end up mimicking my Australian accent when he got back home, a discussion we'd had as we walked towards the press conference to announce that he wanted to ask the Commonwealth uh, to change the rules so that for the British monarchy, it wouldn't matter whether it was a firstborn son or daughter, but they would be the next to uh, become king or queen. And I'd quipped with him as we walked that this was one for the Sheilas and he tried to take my accent off in the UK. Uh, no offence taken. Uh, but <laughs> he does have a terrible always, track record, actually. I always but... found him pretty good fun and Barack Obama particularly very good fun. He does have a terrible track record, David Cameron, for... Um letting slip things that people have said in private conversations, as I think the Queen can attest to as well. Um, what about you, Hella? Who was good fun on the world? Or who was a nightmare on the, in the World Leaders Club? Well, quite, I think I'll leave the nightmares <laughs> oh, for another on. occasion. It's only uh, just the three of us I, chatting. I, I think the most important to remember is that you do have, uh, you always have human moments with the world leaders that you meet uh, it often looks so serious, but of course there are a lot of human moments. And I think my most human moment that 
people that almost got me world famous was the selfie that I took with the Barack Obama and uh, and David Cameron in in South Africa. If you like what you're hearing, you can listen to the whole of my Times Radio show. Either listen back on the Times Radio app or you can listen live Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. We'll have more on the episode after this. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewellery of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. So so I think there are moments like that where you kind of forget that you're part of a bigger public and everyone is looking at you, but where it's just two people or three people having a chat and having a little bit of a laugh. And I do think all the seriousness that you have to go through, NATO meetings, uh, nuclear summits, whatever it is, uh, there's always a chat uh, in the corner of the room which where you have a little bit of a laugh. And I think that's extremely important for when the hard times come that you can you actually know each other a little bit bit better at a human level. And lots of people talk about being a prime minister or president. Well, it's been quite a lonely time. I mean, I suppose it, those events, it's an opportunity. You know, you, you are all probably more in the same boat than most of the other people you work with back home. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And you, you do develop kind of a collegial uh, way of being with each other, particularly in, in the European Union, of course. In the European Union, heads and states of government meet on a very regular basis and certainly did back then in, in the economic crisis, the financial crisis. So we met all the time. Time. Uh, we spend a lot of time with each other because they, the meetings go on to like the middle of the night, four or five o'clock in the night. So you get to know your colleagues quite well, both the good sides and the bad sides. Uh, and I do think they become colleagues where you can also have a bit of a laugh of the tri- trials and tribulations that you have at home. And during your time in office, did either of you ever come across Boris Johnson, now our prime minister in the UK? Uh, no, I did not. Um, I've uh, spoken to Boris Johnson in more recent times, particularly because he's got a passion for girls' education and I chair the Global Partnership for Education and I think he very genuinely believes that investing in girls' education in some of the poorest parts of the world is a huge way of making sure that we live on a more peaceful and prosperous planet. But I didn't deal with him back when I was Prime Minister. What about you, Heather? Did you ever come across him? No, I didn't. Well, there we are. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe right to the future. <laughs> um, we should touch on the fact that obviously you were both the first female prime minister in your uh, your respective countries, and there are a few more now. But the world's not awash with um, female leaders. Uh, let's talk about the, the misogyny, which is so obviously there that uh, female leaders face. Julia, you famously 
the probably your most famous speech uh, during your time, hitting back at your opponent, Tony Abbott, uh, saying if he wants to know what misogyny looks like in modern Australia, he doesn't need a motion. The House, he needs a mirror. Uh, it got pretty... I mean, in Aust- Australian politics is probably rougher than uh, in lots of parts of the world. But explain to me what it's like. You know, it's already a high-pressure job being a, a world leader, but being a woman as well, how much more difficult is that? It is more difficult, and my own experiences have sparked in me a fascination with women and leadership now, which has, of course, led me to uh, create at King's College London the Global Institute for Women's Leadership. So we're researching into all of the barriers for women leaders. And I've uh, just co-authored a book I've got coming out uh, a little late this year with an African friend of mine, Ngozi Okonjiri-Wheeler, on women and leadership. So, you know, it's hard to summarise all the barriers, but to do it really quickly, I mean, for women, uh, because women are still unusual in politics, uh, because our image of leadership is still a man in a suit, there is much more focus on appearance, much more focus on family life questions. And then there's the sort of outworking of the set of gender biases that still whisper in all the backs of our brains, which tend to tell us that, you know, women who lead, who are strong, who are tough, aren't very likeable. And so women leaders end up on this tightrope, whereas if they look too strong, people will think that they're nasty people. But if they look too soft, then people will think they don't have the backbone to lead. So it's a, a fairly narrow terrain that women leaders have to stay on in order to get public acceptance for their leadership. Did you feel that as well, Helen, that you were constantly walking yeah, that tightrope? Absolutely. And I think uh, Julia describes it very uh, accurately that that is, it is a tightrope that you, you have to walk on here. My favourite song in these days was actually uh, on tightrope uh, with Chanel Monet. And I used to li- li- listen to that song when I was uh, doing my runs because it did, did feel that all the time. And there's this question of being, being too, uh, too hard and taking hard decisions and you're not likable, you're cold. Uh, and then there's the other side. If you're too emotional, if you cry at a certain event, uh, you are uh, too soft to be a leader. And I think that is what everyone has in, their, in the back of their... This is not only what men think, it's also what women think, that we have this unconscious bias in ourselves where we have a lot of assumptions about what women should be like. And many of those assumptions, they don't coincide with what is, is uh, what we uh, associate with being a strong leader. So these... This is the crunch of the of the issue, and it's very hard to walk that tight tight rope. And what I felt often was that people people couldn't say to me, "Oh, we can't feel you. We don't know who you are. We can't feel your heart." Or, and when when they then met me, they said, "Oh, you're not much nicer in real life." Because I think all of us are actually much nicer in real life uh, than what we portray. Because we have to be very calm, very collected in order to be taken seriously as uh, as leaders, uh, as female leaders. So this is something that all women leaders have experienced. And I'm thrilled that uh, Julia is, uh, is putting this, this into uh, book format so we can all really understand these barriers. And obviously on top of all of that and all the best laid plans, when you become Prime Minister, you've got your sort of to-do list of things you want to do. But then events come along, crises um, happen, the best laid plans all sort of fall by the wayside. Uh, what was the moment when something happened and you thought, oh, I really wish I hadn't signed up to this, Julia? Let's start with you. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, I, I, I never had that moment. I mean, as, as tough as it got, and I'm not going to pretend that there weren't moments when I was, you know, very uh, tired. Um, it, you know, it's physically exhausting. It's emotionally exhausting. So you really had to give yourself a talking to in the morning before you got out of bed and got going for another day. So yes, there were moments like that, but there was never a moment where I thought to myself, I don't want to be here. I mean, you go into politics, I think, and this is true of people on all sides of politics, overwhelmingly. People go into politics for the right reasons. They go in because they want to make change and make things better. Uh, when you get the opportunity, the days in government, they're precious. You know, no matter how long you get to be there, it'll never be long enough to do everything that you want to do. And so, you know, that sense of, you know, everyday matters, let's make it count really propels you on and you obviously i mean you had also ash cloud floods uh you like you said you were dealing with the fallout of the financial crisis what, what ends up being the split of the doing the stuff you want to do and the dealing with all the other stuff that ends up on your desk well, look, I think um, every leader has things that just come on their desk. And I did in Australia on global financial crisis uh, was ongoing when uh, I became prime minister. Certainly there were some very major natural disasters and you've always got to deal with that. But I actually think the the problem of staying on track is not so much uh, those things coming onto the table as well. It's that government's a really big machine and, you know, you could wake up every morning and the machine could whir and give you things to do as Prime Minister. But at the end of the day, it would be running you rather than you running it. And you've got to have the resolve every day to push this big machine to deliver to the things that you want it to deliver. Uh, and that's what takes the effort. You know, making sure that if your highest priorities are, you know, education, national disability insurance scheme, you know, better jobs, um, you know, making sure that there are more women uh, put on government boards, you know, the sorts of priorities my government had uh, that you've got to push every day or the machinery of government will just sort of lapse back to the way it's always done things. Hello, is that your experience as well? Absolutely. That is so hard for for stuff that happens to push your agenda around. And it's very important to try to stick to that. Uh, but you also find so, uh, something about yourself in times of, of crisis. Uh, I would consider the financial crisis. That's the biggest thing that we had to deal with. And we started an enormous reform program, which actually meant that Denmark could go, get through the financial crisis with a strong welfare state on the other side and a lot of solidarity on the other side, which is what we wanted. But it took its toll to go through with this reform program because most people don't like reforms, particularly if something is taken from them. So we had to balance out certain austerity measures with growth policies, uh, which which was really hard, uh, but I'm very, very proud that we did that. But then, of course, stuff happens that you haven't planned. And we, the worst thing that happened when I was prime minister was definitely uh, the terrorist attack in the, in Denmark, uh, which scared us all because we are not used to that kind of thing in the, in, in Denmark. No one is, of course, but we we consider ourselves a very safe uh, country. So that really shook the whole country that that could happen in in a country like uh, ours. Uh, and I found out something about my own style of leadership in a time of crisis. Um, and uh, I never thought, I don't want to be here. Actually, rather the opposite. I thought, this is this is what I'm built for. I'm built to, to try and 
deal with these kind of crises. Uh, and you learn so much about your country and the gov- and government, but also about yourself in those uh, those kind of situations. What goes through your mind when you when somebody comes and tells you the news about a shooting in in your country? What's the sort of immediate personal human response to that? I mean, the immediate response is uh, I need to get into the office and get people together who can deal with this. Uh, obviously, you're not always sure whether it is a terrorist attack in the beginning. Uh, it could be a, a more simple crime that had happened. Uh, but uh, once you realize that this is actually a terrorist attack, if someone is is shooting and trying to shoot someone who is uh, at a public meeting, then it is a terrorist attack. And what, what I did was to just gather everyone, police, uh, uh, intelligence, services, all the services to try and deal with this as best possible. But it's not a good situation when you haven't caught the perpetrator yet. Uh, and when that then person goes out and kills uh, kills another person in the night, it was a terrible, terrible situation. Uh, but the instinct is just to do as much as you can, uh, but also to, to inform the public about what's happening. So they, though they don't feel too insecure. So, uh, so no, this is a big task. Uh, and uh, uh, action, uh, I would say, is the, is the buzzword that comes into my head. You just want to action something and do as much as you can. Well, obviously, coronavirus has been testing world leaders like no other crisis for decades and decades. I, I wonder if either of you have thought you'd like to be back in the thick of things right now <laughs> or sort of... You know, just wishing them, wishing world leaders well from the sidelines. Uh, Julia, what do you think? Oh, certainly wishing world leaders well. Uh, I think, you know, when you leave politics, you've uh, got to, or at least I've found for myself, you've got to look forward. So I don't spend my life uh, looking back or looking sideways and saying, what if I was there now? I've set new challenges for myself, new things to do, and I put my energies and passions into them. But I do look at prime ministers and presidents around the world with, you know, eyes of sympathy and try and send them good thoughts, um, send, send them energy and strength because it's such a difficult time in so many places and well, right around the world. And it's not just the health crisis as dire as that is. It's managing the economic fallout. So much to do for leaders, you know, the science to get across, uh, to be informed by, to have the best policies that can be there to get people through the health crisis and the economic crisis. Some people have noted, in fact, we were talking about it on the programme earlier this morning, that, um, that some countries like Germany, New Zealand have done very well in handling the coronavirus crisis, at least so far. They've got women in charge. Do you think there's a connection uh, in that, Julia? I think we have to be a little bit careful. I do think many of the places that have got women in charge have done extraordinarily well. And I do think that this is a time which calls for uh, empathy and it calls for an intellectual rigour about listening to the science. It calls for humility in the face of the challenge. You can't just barrel out and say, I know I've got this. You've got to listen and learn. I'm not a believer that men and women's brains are built differently, but certainly men and women are socialised differently. And I think women leaders, because of their socialisation, probably have a number of those traits can, and can bring them to the fore at a time like this. What about you, Helen? Have you, have you wished that you were back in the thick of things? 
No, I haven't wished I was back, uh, but it's not something that would scare me. A lot of people have asked me, oh, aren't you happy that you don't have to deal with that? And I don't think like that at all. I look at world leaders and I wish them the best, but I can't see one of those press conferences without thinking what was in their briefing, how did they get told that, how do they know that? I can't, it's like something that you have from the trade, I guess, that you you see things uh, with different eyes. Uh, But I do think that on the question of women leaders, I really agree with with Julia that we can't read too much into it. Uh, And what I'm seeing in, for example, New Zealand, uh, Germany, my own country, Denmark, uh, Norway, which has done very well, is that they are also these leaders. uh, They have the traits that Julia is talking about, but they're also backed by really good government systems uh, where you are actually capable of changing course, uh, experts that you listen to, systems that act actually work. So I also think this is a tribute to the countries that have established themselves with good civil servants, um, local communities that work where you can do these swift changes. Uh, And for example, I can't help comparing between uh, my own country, Denmark, and the UK where I live now. And there's so big differences in the governance structures, uh, which makes uh, tackling these kind of uh, pandemics very, very uh, different. So we have to look at not only the leaders, but also the systems that are backing them. Now, just before I, I, I let you go, um, Hella, I've got to talk to you about Borgen, which I uh, love yeah. <laughs> uh, to such an extent. I've taken my family to Copenhagen not once but twice to to to, <laughs> to walk, you know, to walk along the um, the corridors of power, if you like. Um, you know, you had a complicated coalition at work, a British partner at home, obviously uh, Labour MP Stephen Kinnock. Uh, you've been compared with Birgit from uh, uh, Borgen. Did you watch it, or was it just a bit too much like work? Uh, well, I did watch it, but then it became it just became a bit um, uh, it, something happening in like uh, they got divorced and their daughter got mentally is, got mental issues, and then I got very angry with it. And I told the author that I was very angry, and he explained to me that it had to be that fiction was fiction. So I do admire that program, <laughs> and I'm I'm very happy that. Uh, that this is the the Danish Broadcasting Association that made this this program. Uh, It became world famous. And for me, I guess it was interesting because obviously they interviewed me before they they made the program. Uh, There are certain things in there that reminded me of my own political career. So it's it's very interesting that people have finally, abroad has finally understood what it means to have a coalition government, what it means to have minority government stuff that I think we could never have taught the global community. But now they have an impression of what that is like well it's absolutely fascinating stuff i suppose i'll I'll just ask you both then if not borgen then what what's the what's the tv show or the film which is most life most captures uh being a world leader (laughs) i think one of the problems here is it's a bit like doctors watching medical shows you know (laughs) uh, uh, in order to serve the drama a whole lot has to be taken out and so you do get a bit eye rolling about how they're legislating things in five minutes because you know it's not like that (laughs) Um, I was a huge fan having said that though of the West Wing which I thought managed to uh, bring to uh, bring through drama um, you know, quite complicated issues and various sides of debates and get people to see them, but through a drama that really held your attention. But that's quite a few years back now. And what about you, Hella? If not, if not Borgen? Uh, I, no, I loved West Wing. I loved Borgen. But what I've really laughed about most is Veep, um, which I think <laughs> is, is an absolute brilliant series. And it's it's 
very far from the truth, of course, but there are some of the things in there that you kind of recognise uh, from politics and it's just hysterical. Yeah, well, that, I think that captures it perfectly. You've got the high-minded, sort of principled world of, uh, of the West Wing and then the fact that quite often things don't, do go a bit wrong behind the scenes from Veep. Uh, it's, it's, I could speak to you all morning, but I'm conscious that um, uh, we've got to let you go and we've got, we've got lots more coming up, but it's been an absolute joy uh, speaking to you both. Uh, Julia Gillard, uh, former Australian uh, Prime Minister and now Chair of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, and Helen Thornton-Schmidt, former uh, Prime Minister of Denmark, uh, joining us on Times Radio. Thank you to you both. That's all we've got time for on this episode. To listen to the whole Times Radio show, just go to the Times Radio app and click Listen Again. To make sure you don't miss future episodes of the podcast, subscribe on Apple, Acast, Spotify or wherever you listen. And to read more about what we've been talking about on the podcast, go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Radio to subscribe. But for now, for me, Matt Cholly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.